Oh, well, good evening, friends. How are you tonight? Good. Hey, my name is Colin. I serve here with our community team. But here at Fellowship, we, uh, this whole church exists to uh, produce and release spiritual leaders. And funny enough, the way that I actually began my journey in spiritual leadership at Fellowship was through worship, uh, serving with a, a junior high worship team. And funny enough, uh, one of our worship shepherds, Cassie here, was one of the first times I got to leave worship in this room shaking in my knees as a high schooler. Cassie was there walking with me through it, and it's a joy. And this is my wife, Erin. Everybody say hi, Erin. Hi. Well, hey, uh, this is meant to be more of a family gathering than kind of a, a corporate get-together. So would you mind, just go ahead, stand up, and would you say hi to the folks around you? Maybe someone you came with, for sure, but go ahead and just introduce, and if you see a new face, say hey. Y'all sing this with us to our King and friend Jesus tonight. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. For nothing good. Let's sing it together. For nothing good have I Whereby thy grace to claim I'll wash my garments white In the blood of Calvary's land This is good news, sing it out Jesus paid it all Bride of Jesus Christ. And now complete in him my robe, his righteousness, close sheltered neath his side. I am divinely blessed. Jesus paid it all.
Don't you agree? Absolutely. We can celebrate tonight. Hey, one of my favorite things with acoustic sets, and, and when you pull things back like this, is that we actually get to hear one another's voices. So I just encourage you, tonight as we sing these songs, would you not just sing them to God, would you actually be able to sing them over one another? And without further ado, you can take a seat and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Matt Natzel. Hi, y'all. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, good to be with you tonight. If this is your first time, really glad that you're here. We want to know that you're here. A good way to do that is to uh, say hi to somebody in the center info booth there in the foyer or just greet someone next to you uh, after the service. It's a good time to just say hello. Uh, my name's Matt. I work with the family team here, and I'm glad to be with you. Um, wanted to put in front of you uh, that this weekend, right now, the, the current elders of our church are on a retreat. And this is the annual treat, retreat that they go on that they uh, take all of the, uh, the, the nominations that we made last fall and they are prayerfully working through those and, and trying to hear from the Lord who are going to be the next people that join our elder board. They're, they're looking at the, the funds and the budget and, and answering some questions on what are the big ministry initiatives that we think are just out of reach that maybe God is calling us to, to push for and, and to lean into. And so I wanted to just put this, this email with sent out this week to the staff, these couple of prayer requests. And I wanted just to offer you a moment, pick one of those just for the next 20, 30 seconds and pray over one of those uh, tonight on, on behalf of those elders. Pray with me. May it be so, Lord. May it be so. Um, all right. Well, a couple other things I wanted to put in front of you. Uh, one is we are in the midst of the, the kickoff of the year. And the kickoff of the year is the time where a lot of things are, are picking back up again after the, the holiday hiatus. And so uh, community groups are, are firing back up. If you are not plugged into one and you, you'd like to figure out how to get into one, uh, a good place to go is out in the foyer. Uh, ask at the booth and we'll get you on, uh, get you rolling into those. But uh, another way is if you've never gone into a community group and you're just like, I need to know what this place is about or I've been here long enough, I know what it's about. I probably could lead those combos, but I've just never done the, the formal process Discover starting in February, and it's a great way just to get, uh, get in homes. The, the Frittles are hosting, so thanks, y'all, for doing that. I'll be there at the end of February, so it'll be good to see you then. Um, and so we're going to be working through those, uh, those weekends together, just uh, studying how did this 
place even come to exist? What do we believe? Why are we here? But that's, uh, that's in front of you, uh, immediately in front of you, if you are one of the women in the crowd, is that tomorrow morning is the women's New Year's brunch uh, over in the lodge uh, starting at 10 a.m., and uh, you don't have to bring anything unless somebody's already told you you're bringing something. Otherwise, you just show up and eat and hang out and be encouraged, and so uh, it, it'll be a good time. Um, I want to invite up, though, uh, Kathy Miller. She serves with Grief Share, and she was going to uh, answer a couple of questions. Colette loves her, right? Colette loves Grief Share, too. She's, all right. So, Kathy. <laughs> all righty. So, Kathy, um, tell me, what is Grief Share? Grief Share is a 13-week international faith-based program. Um, it, is, it consists of a group of volunteers here at our church, uh, none of us are licensed counselors, but we have all participated and lost someone and went through the program and yeah. want to try to help others along their journey. It has a, um, we have a light meal, uh, we watch a video, and then we have discussion time. That's good. And yeah. it's just working through, when you're in the midst of grief, you can't get through. You're, you're, uh, and, or you just want somebody to go there with you. That's kind of what you described. So. Absolutely. We, you know, we want to give tools. Just you can't predict grief at all. Everybody does it differently. Yeah. And it equips people maybe a little better. That's I think good. so. <laughs> well, you were talking to maybe Ashley or somebody, yeah. and you just said, there's a really basic need that we have that I, I think yeah. if we put it in front of the church, it would get met immediately. So what, what yeah. need are you bringing tonight? Okay. Well, um, we do try to do a meal. And for people, you might think a meal's not that big of a deal. We do a lot of food here at the church. But um, I believe <laughs> it was um, Jan Phillips. She may be here. She's uh, been a Mosaic member for many years. But I believe it was Jan that after she attended, thought it was really a need. If you think about, if you've ever been in grief, um, you don't get much sleep. You might have to take on a lot more responsibilities. And people just genuinely get sick. And so um, we also find that often if it's a widow, they're just not eating as properly, um, especially the men. And so there was a, a desire a long time ago to have meals. And so that is something that um, we would like to just generate more. We have a core group but they might serve two or three times a semester. Yeah. We only meet 13 times. So we would love to have community groups, individuals, yeah. anybody help us. And you said it's not a very big group. It's yeah. sometimes 10 to 15 people. And yeah, it's about a half 20. hour of showing up and serving yes, the meal. absolutely. So we meet in the Build Training Center at the back of the campus. The class is from 6 to 7.30. What we love is if somebody will come and put the food on that little coffee bar um, if it's throwaway containers, they can just leave the food. If they want to serve, we love that. And then they can just take their things afterwards and go. Um, if they want to leave it, we usually send the people home with it. And um, I know our community group did it recently. And I think the men that night, our women couldn't be there. And the men went. And they sat and ate and just visited afterwards together. Cool. So it can be a time of fellowship for your group as well. That's great. So okay. if you are just somebody who loves hospitality or loves to cook a good meal and you've been told, hey, you make the best dot, 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 whatever, stew or whatever, this is a great opportunity to just very simply meet a need for people that are in a really hard space. So uh, you, can, you can email her here or give her a, a text or a call at either of those numbers. It's a good place Absolutely. to get a Colette hold of Kathy. in the office as well. And yep. thank you so much. Yeah, okay. thanks, Kathy. All right, thanks. You're welcome. Woohoo! <clears throat> well, we are going to do our, our, uh, our offering prayer. Um, everybody get a chance to get that picture if you needed it. Very good. 
If not, you can always get a hold of us. We'll, we'll get to you. So we're, we're going to do our offering prayer, but I've, I've been turning over um, just as we think about generosity, one, just being able to put up something like that, because I do just trust that when we say it in front of you all, there's enough people in here that that need's going to be met. I just trust that God has brought people together to meet one another's needs. It's just a really cool thing that he's done. But um, there's a line, this, this, this line here, may they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. Um, and I had a really tiring Saturday. I don't know about you, but it was just one of those days that, whew, you can ask me about it later and I'll, you'll laugh with me because it, it's ridiculous. But I also started thinking about just the, the other things, the, the background news that maybe doesn't hit my, my every day, but, but hits each of these. So as I was just kind of reflecting on this, I thought about shelter for the homeless and I thought about the number of cold snaps we've had in the last couple of weeks and, and those are devastating if you don't have a home to warm. Those, those are difficult and so I've been grateful for uh, the, the partner ministries that are serving in homeless populations in Northwest Arkansas, remediating those difficult needs. Uh, thinking about comfort to the sick uh, both reflecting on recent passings of people from our congregation after chronic illnesses or knowing some of you that have walked through really difficult health seasons or are still in the midst of them. And, and so names are coming to mind. I'm not, I don't want to call you out, but I'm just, my heart is stirred for, for those who are sick. Um, rest to the weary. I'm, I'm thinking about church partners, brothers and sisters in, in Memphis going, ah, it's, we're, we're in the midst of a hard situation again, and it's got to be wearisome. And so just turning over uh, that, that circumstance, um, thinking about hope to the hopeless, and we're, we're coming up on a year of war in Ukraine, and brothers and sisters there uh, ministering still in the midst of war and, and tragedy. And so as I'm, as I'm thinking about this, I'm, I'm bringing all of that into it. It's one of the reasons why I, I love prayers that we repeat, because sometimes I work so hard to figure out what it's saying that, that when I finally actually learned a prayer, when I've, when I've said this so many times that it kind of comes up unnaturally in me, it, it, it lets me fill it in with the, the things that I bring in here tonight. And so you might have other reflections tonight, and, and if you do, you turn, turn to the person next to you and say, man, that makes me think of dot, 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 and, and it'd be a good opportunity to just turn that way. But can I, can I lead us then in our, our offering prayer? Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiplied the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gift to us, your Son and your Spirit. Amen. Let's take a moment now and we'll uh, sing together resting at the feet of the cross. Of sorrow, splendor of God, by His own betrayed, the sin 
like you and me. heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Together to him now. now. My debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus still. Now the curse of sin now my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus oh, spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the sun sets free. Oh, salvation where your love poured 
good news of the gospel is not just a savior who died, is it? But a savior who rose. Let's sing of that empty tomb. See the stone. The stone is rolled away. Behold the empty tomb. And with a shout of praise, Hallelujah, God be praised. He's risen from the Oh, 
moment now in prayer. Or maybe just go ahead and remind yourself, where have you seen the triune God of life and love display his faithfulness to you today? Here's a moment today you can look back on in reflection and you can just see his loving kindness all over. To that faithful God will sing. It wasn't a day. There wasn't a day. That you weren't by my side There wasn't a day That you let me fall In all of my life Your love has been true So with all of my life I will worship you, God There wasn't a day That you weren't by my side in a day that you let me fall in all of my life your love has been true so with all of my life I will worship you we will worship you sing it together church I will. And I will sing of all you've done, and I'll remember how far you've carried me from beginning to. standing now and hear now from the word of the Lord. Good evening, fellowship. My name is Chris. You've already met my wife, Kathy. Uh, we lead a community group in Springdale, so if you are looking for a place in Springdale, give me a call. You've got her number on the screen earlier. And you can talk to Jerry out in the foyer. Um, it's our privilege tonight to read to you all from Esther. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the purr that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word pur. 
because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should, without fail, observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when I was getting ready this afternoon, in my typical scattered, distracted state, I couldn't find my skinny Bible, which means I'm, I've got my 10-pound Bible tonight, which is actually an excuse for a little promo. I remember I was probably 14 um, when my parents got me the NIV study Bible, and it was just an amazing resource, and they updated it a couple of years ago, and it has really pretty color pictures now, which I also really like. In all sincerity, if you are looking for help um, in studying and making sense of the scripture and understanding some of the historical background, this is just my personal favorite. Um, Zondervan puts out the NIV Study Bible. It's really, really wonderful. So, hey, we are wrapping up our series on Esther tonight um, before we next week transition with Dr. Gary Oliver into the book of Daniel, and I'm really looking forward to spending um, a couple of months in the book of Daniel together. As we come to the end of this story of Esther, and, and we reflect on what is this all about, the, the celebration, the feast that we just heard about is, is the Feast of Purim that's celebrated um, in Israel to this day. And in the description, the very naming of the feast, I think the point of the entire book of Esther comes across. Um, did you get what that word pure means? The lot. It, it's, it's the dice that you roll. Now think of the irony of this feast. The entire destiny of wiping out all of the Jewish people was determined by somebody throwing a dice. That was how random heartless and reckless the execution of the Jews was. And I think the point of the entire book of Esther could be summed up in the idea that people can throw the dice, but the result is in the hands of the Lord. That he is over every little detail down to the very casting of lots to determine the future of God's people. And so it's the, the story is showing us how even in the seemingly insignificant details, God is working to protect his people. And as we come to the end of the story, we really look at the resolution and how all of it plays out. Um, we're going to highlight just a few things that I think are uh, some important takeaways for us to have at the end of this story. So just to catch you up and remind you of what, what's happened so far, we follow the story of Mordecai and Esther, um, two cousins that are living in Persia, 
while the rest of the Jewish people or many of the Jewish people are back in Jerusalem rebuilding their destroyed city. And Esther, through a series of circumstances, rises to the place of Queen of Persia, and Haman has a plot to have all the Jewish people killed. And he gets King Xerxes, by manipulating him, to sign a decree on a certain day that people can just go out and kill all the Jews. And so Esther, in in her courageous moment, there's this really dramatic story that sets the whole thing up, comes in and appeals to the king not to do this. And there's there's a key moment that we can sometimes miss in how these decrees are played out because it can seem like this total vindictive thing that the Jews just go out and kill all their enemies. But what we have to notice happens here is in the episode we looked at last week, when Haman is punished for planning to kill the queen, Xerxes does not revoke the command to kill all the Jews. Why not? Well, that's something that was established early in the story. Persian kings never revoke their order. They never say they're wrong about anything. So if he publishes a decree that goes throughout the whole empire saying do something, he is never going to take that back. It's a little bit, you know the the interviewing advice that when somebody asks for what your biggest weakness is, what do you do? You do not tell them your greatest weakness, right? You tell them a strength. I just work too hard. I don't know. I guess maybe I'm too smart. I don't know. Like you don't tell them an actual weakness whenever they ask your weakness. Persian kings do not take back their commands. So they are trying to figure out How do they protect the Jewish people and Xerxes saves face and doesn't take back his imperial command? So Esther proposes this. If you won't take back the command to kill the Jews, will you at least give us permission to defend ourselves? See, the initial command was state-sanctioned execution of the Jews. So for any Jew to defend themselves would be mutiny against the state. And so that's the command that Xerxes gives because that's a good solution. So he just says, I've commanded that they can kill the Jews. Now I command the Jews can defend themselves. And that's the setup at the end of chapter eight is that Xerxes has commanded that the Jews have permission to defend themselves. And then chapters nine and 10 follow the conclusion to this story and how everything plays out in the end. And as we look at this conclusion, there's three things I want us to just take note of. One is a holy partnership, and then there's a holy war, and finally, a holy feast. Let's take a look at those together. First, look at the holy partnership that takes place in Esther chapter 9, beginning in verse 29. It says, so Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter conferring Purim. Um, one of the, the interesting debates that people have is who is the main character of this book? Is it, is it Mordecai or is it Esther? They, it goes back and forth between the two. And I think that's one of the very interesting points that we see developing through here is how God works through both of these people in significant ways. And I think it's very deliberate in this last chapter when, you're, when the author is highlighting who God is working through, he shows that the authority to write the command comes through both Mordecai and Esther. Um, Karen Jobes, who is a a scholar that we've referred to a lot, her commentary has helped us a ton, she makes this observation that the book of Esther shows us women women having influence beyond ordination and motherhood. And this is her observation of how it tends to play out in churches, um, around the debates, around uh, women in leadership. And and the the way it has tended to happen is, in a lot of churches, if they do not ordain women as lead pastors, 
what they end up saying is, that's okay, you get to have influence as a mom. And by the way, I'm not demeaning the role of mother at all. I think it's one of the most significant, important roles in society and in the church. But one of the things Job says is, we're not left with those as the only two spheres of influence women can have. And one of the things that Esther shows us is the way that God works through a woman in her sphere of influence in this way. And so they're, they're both lifted up, um, both Mordecai and Esther, as people through whom God is working. Through this partnership, he plays out through both. And that leads into the concept of holy war. And I'll be honest, when I have thought about the book of Esther, this is the topic that has caused me to struggle, wrestle, and squirm the most, is coming to what happens here in Esther chapter 9. Um, in Esther chapter 9, once the decree goes out and we actually get to the description of the war that takes place, we read in chapter 9, chapter nine verse 5, the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, okay, get ready for this. Um, has anybody ever found themselves in a small group Bible study where they were assigned to read the passage that had all the hard names? Okay, give yourself some grace, okay? If you don't speak Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, that's okay. Um, so just a lot of times I skip, I'm going to take a stab at it, but it could come out really interestingly. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adah, I lost my place, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And then look at this last phrase, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, when I, when I first read this concept that they gave the Jews permission to do what they pleased to their enemies, I, I feel deeply troubled inside by that concept. And, and I actually would encourage you that you probably should too. Because there is a, a notion that Jesus instructs his people in to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek. And so I come to these moments in the Old Testament where I read the Jews are sent out to do what they please to their enemies, and they kill hundreds. And then we actually read further on that Esther goes back to Xerxes, and he says, how did it go? And she tells him how many people are dead, and she goes, hey, um, actually, can we do it again tomorrow? We have a few more enemies we'd like to kill. And I'm sitting here going, is it, I mean, is this God's desire? Is this how God wants this to play out? But I think, I think there's something in this phrase, they did not lay their hands on the plunder, that is actually a clue as to what is theologically going on here. That phrase has great significance in the Old Testament. One of the places we can look to to see it is 1 Samuel chapter 15. And 1 Samuel chapter 15 is actually a passage that we might not be as familiar with, but all of the original readers of Esther, if they had grown up around the Hebrew scriptures, their minds would have gone there instantly with this story. Let me show you why. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, um, a man named Saul has been made king over Israel. He's the first king of the people of Israel. And we read Samuel as a prophet, and he's speaking to Saul. 
And Saul has just been sent to war with a group of people called the Amalekites. Um, the, we're going to go on a little bit of a nerd history tangent here, but just hang with me. It's going to be worth it, okay? When Moses first led the people of Israel out of Egypt, they were traveling on their way up to the promised land, minding their own business, and a people called the Amalekites, unprovoked, attacked Israel and tried to wipe them out. And in that moment, God protected them, and he declared judgment on the Amalekites. He, he said, right now, I'm taking my people to the promised land, but there is a day that I will come back and judge the Amalekites. Then when Saul becomes king, God commands Saul, your, one of your first tasks is to go execute the judgment on the Amalekites that I prophesied I would do back under Moses. And this is what happens after the war, um, in this moment whenever he is, or this is before the war, and he's about to give Saul this command. He says, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over this, his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now, go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. They are supposed to destroy absolutely everything in the entire civilization. And the rule is, when Israel does this, they are not allowed to take anything to enrich themselves. They're not allowed to take any of the wealth. They're not allowed to take any of the livestock. This is not a way to go get rich by conquering. This is the judgment of the Lord. Now what Saul does is he goes to war, and the Lord is with him, and he wins, but he tries to keep some things for himself. I actually think it's the, one of the funniest scenes in the entire Bible, because Saul decides he's going to keep all the livestock to make himself wealth, wealthy, and Samuel comes up to Saul after the battle and says, hey Saul, did you obey the word of the Lord? And he goes, oh yeah, I obeyed him all right, I killed him all. And then Samuel goes, um, what's that sound of sheep I hear? Like, I just love picturing that moment where Saul goes, I obeyed him, killed them all. And then Samuel's like, what? Like, the, the whole point is, when God is executing judgment on a people, the people he's working through are not allowed to use that for personal gain at all. Because it's not about two people going to war against each other. It's about God executing his judgment. And there is an idea in this, this theology of judgment in holy war that probably sits very uncomfortably, especially with a lot of us in the West, but is a consistent theme throughout the scripture. And that is that God has the right to judge. Only God has the right to judge, but he certainly does have that right. God, as the creator of the universe, has the right to determine people's destiny. He has the right to punish sin. Humans do not. We do not have the right to judge people's destiny and their future, but God certainly does. And in the history of the scriptures, we see God doing this in different ways in different eras. Early in the scriptures, God does it directly and supernaturally. Think of stories like the flood with Noah, where God condemned a civilization and wiped them all out with a flood. You could also think of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
when God condemned an entire city. And then you can think about God's judgment over Egypt with the ten plagues, where he brought down his wrath. Those stories early in the books of Genesis and Exodus show God executing his wrath in supernatural ways. And then as he forms the nation of Israel, a transition takes place. God still has the right to judge nations and civilizations. But he begins to do it through the people of Israel under the leadership of Israel's king. And so we see this with the people of Joshua when they go into the land of Canaan. Uh, We see this with the judges of Israel in that period. And then we finally see it under the kingdoms of Israel. And that's why Saul has that role. We see David have that role when he goes to war with Goliath and other battles. But here's the key point. The people of Israel can only go to holy war when they are directly commanded by God and that command is given through his covenant leader. Every single time Israel decides on their own initiative, we're going to go out and go to war, we're going to go take out our enemies without God's command, they get just beaten down. They don't have the right to go wage war on their own, but God does execute his judgment through them. Now, Early, phase one, God did it supernaturally. During the kingdom of Israel, he did it through Israel's king on the nations that he declared judgment on. And then we're told in the scripture there's a future day where there'll be a final judgment, where God has the right and in his justice to determine what is good and right for each person. Here's the the significant point for us thinking about this today that has to come home. God only judges nations through holy war in a military, through his express command given through the leader of his people. Who is the leader of God's people today? Who is the king that sits on David's throne, the throne of the people of Israel? Of all the questions we're asking here, here's your Sunday school answer. You get to knock this one out of the park. His name is Jesus. So do you know what that means? No army on earth can claim to be waging holy war in the name of God unless Jesus is physically on the ground acting as their general. So here's the deal. If when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom, he tells all of his people, get armed for battle, we're going to war, we'll obey, right? He has the right to do that. Until then, no nation can claim we are the army of God, executing God's righteousness on earth. That was for a special time when God was working through the nation of Israel, through the Davidic king. Now, what I'm not saying is that nations aren't allowed to go to war with each other for just causes. In the history of Christian interpretation, people have disagreed on what makes a just war, what makes an unjust war. I'm not commenting on that at all. That's a really difficult issue. What I'm saying is, when the nations of the world go to war today, none of them can say, we are God's army, executing God's judgment on you. That right is reserved for the Lord himself. And we'll talk a little bit more about how that plays out for us today. 
And so it leads us with a kind of a very uncomfortable for me question of how do we reconcile all of the really horrible things that are going on in the book of Esther? How do we reconcile this young Jewish girl getting taken up into Xerxes' harem? How do we reconcile thousands of people being killed? And it leads to this very deep problem that the, the book of Esther has been raising over and over again, which is how do we understand the place of evil in God's plan? And, and I think it raises the interesting question that theologians have wrestled with for a long time. What options are there for what God could do with evil? Option one is he could prevent it from ever happening. I mean, he could do that, right? God could make it such that people could never choose to do anything evil, and he could prevent anything evil from ever happening. And I don't know why he hasn't done that. And you know what answer the Bible gives? It doesn't answer the question. Job, when he demanded an answer for God on why have you let this happen in my life, he actually says, I want God to go to court. I have an objection and I would like God to answer for what he's done in my life. And you know what God's answer is? Does God explain everything wrong that happened in Job's life? God, I actually think it's one of like the sassiest speeches God ever gives. Because God looks at him and says, Job, you're so wise. You, you were there, right, when I laid the foundations of the earth? That, that was you that put the boundaries of the oceans, didn't you? You designed the cosmos and created the stars, didn't you, Job? What's God's point? God doesn't answer Job's question. He says, Job, the answer to this question is beyond you. He tells Job, Job, you need to trust my wisdom. You need to trust that I know what I'm doing. So God could have prevented any evil from ever happening, and for some reason in his wisdom, he didn't. The second option is he could have allowed evil to alter the, his plans and purposes. He could have allowed evil to come in and wreck everything that he had planned for earth. Or the third option is he could allow evil to exist, but only as a part of his larger purpose. That he could allow evil into the world, but never allow that evil to alter the good things he wanted to do. I'm about to go like into deep nerddom here. But in Tolkien's Silmarillion, which gives the backstory to the Lord of the Rings, there's this fantastic, fantastic creation story account that I just love. And in the story, the way God creates the universe is through a song that he composes. And every piece of the song, every melody, every line is a different element of creation. And the Satan figure in the, in the um, myth keeps on coming in and trying to sing nasty notes that mess up the composition. And he constantly fails because every wrong note he throws in, God moves the chords so that his wrong notes actually make the whole composition more beautiful. All of Satan's attempts to wreck this story, God is so creative, so wise, and so good that he keeps on bending it back into something even more beautiful. And I think Tolkien is really on to the picture here. That somehow, in God's infinite wisdom that we don't understand, he has allowed horrible, atrocious things to happen in the world. 
He's not the author of evil. He never does anything evil. He is holy and completely good. And he is so wise and so good and so powerful that he has so made it that even the most horrendous things somehow at the end of the story will only lead to the greater glory and goodness that he has planned for his people. Now, a little like emotional awareness tip. That is something that is really helpful to reflect on before you're in the midst of tragedy and oftentimes after tragedy. Walking into someone in the middle of tragedy and telling them, hey, you know, I know this hurts right now, but God's gonna use it for good things. Not the most sensitive thing to do. I think it's really helpful to have a theology of how pain and suffering works into the larger plan of God before you're in the midst of the deep hurt. Because in, in that moment of hurt, knowing that it's going to all work out for good may not be that particularly helpful for the pain you're in. In that moment, that pain can overwhelm everything else. And probably the most comforting thing is just to know God is with you. He's with you and he loves you. And people are with you and love you in that too. And so I think one of the things that the book of Esther leads us to see is how God is able to protect and care for his people even in the midst of some really horrible things that are coming to them. And he guides through this holy war to defend his people, to protect his people. And like everything else in Esther, it's ambiguous. It, It looks to me like on the one hand they launched out in holy war, but in my own current reading, I think probably day two was Esther just being spiteful. Uh, it seems to me like she just kept going. I don't know for sure because the narrator doesn't explain to us. We don't have the voice of God in this story explaining which actions are to be taken which ways. But I do think that phrase, they didn't touch the plunder, shows us that what's happening here is a mirror of that holy war. And here's the other connection that brings all that together. Do you remember how the name of the people were the Amalekites? The king of the Amalekites that Saul was supposed to kill was a man named Agag. Do you remember who it said that Haman is a descendant of? Agag, the Amalekite. The other thing that a good Israelite reading the story would have recognized was the judgment on Haman is the completion of the judgment that God said he was going to do back under Moses. That God has the right to judge. He has the right to bring his wrath in his timing and in his way. So then where does that leave us today as the new covenant people of God? What do we do? Like where does God's wrath and God's judgment fit for us? How do we understand our place in that? If we don't have the the military commander of God here to lead us in battle, I think the answer to that question is going to come through taking a look at the concept of the holy feast. Coming back to chapter 9, verse 20. Uh, we read about the initiation of this, this feast called Purim. It says that Mordecai recorded all the events and he sent out the letter in verse 21 to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. There's a pattern in, in Jewish faith of when God intercedes in a powerful way that they need to have a feast to remember it. That remembering of the feast, the remembering of the event, helps them to be reminded of God's faithfulness. It allows them to say, if God did this in the past, 
then I can trust that he will continue to do it in the future. If God delivered us through Purim in this really powerful way, then the the God who made the covenant, that made a promise to protect his people, we can count on him to continue to do that. And when I read this story of God going to war on the behalf of his people, to save and protect them, and establishing a feast that they are to take to remember what God has done, I, I can't help but thinking about another feast that God initiated. We read about it in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, we read, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You see, The story of Esther is the last time in biblical history that we see God going to war on behalf of his people. It's the last example of holy war. When God fought the enemies of his people to protect and defend them. And they all knew that when Messiah came, that was what Messiah was going to do. That that was the job of, of Joshua, the leader of the armies of Israel. That was the job of Saul and David, the kings of God's people. And they knew that when the Messiah came, he was going to fight for them. And when he came in, when Jesus showed up as the Messiah, as the son of David, and he comes into Jerusalem on that donkey, they know here is our deliverer who's going to fight for us. And on Passover, he starts a new feast. And he says, I am the one who's going to start a new covenant with the people of God. And I am about to destroy your enemies. And I don't think anyone in that room that night knew what form it was going to take. And we are very blessed that it took the form it did. Because the reality that Jesus showed people was that even the people of God's covenant community had put themselves in the place of God's enemy. Because of sin, we were God's enemies. We were the ones who deserved to be wiped out. If God went to war on holy war, guess which side of the battle lines we would be on? We are on the side that should be wiped out. We are on the side of people that need judgment. I can sit here ready for God to rain down hell on all the people I'm mad at. But what Jesus taught is that I am in need. That I am the one standing condemned. And Paul summarized it this way in Romans chapter 8. This is the beauty of the good news of the holy war that Jesus fought. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath 
through him. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We live in an era where holy war has taken on a whole new meaning. Because, we, because Christ died for his enemies, he said, I'm showing you what a new covenant looks like. In the new covenant, God is not here to strike down sinners. God is here to die for sinners. And he says that now our struggle is not against other people on this earth. Our struggle is against Satan, sin, and death, and Christ has conquered them all through the blood of his cross and through his resurrection. And so we now have a feast that we get to take as followers of Jesus to remind ourselves of what Christ has done on our behalf, that he went to war and he died for his enemies so that he could make us his children. And that the enemy that we actually needed defeated, he has taken care of. So as we celebrate tonight, we're gonna invite you to come down. We've got tables here up at the front. As we begin to sing, we just wanna invite you to come forward and take the elements um, and take them on your own time as we continue to sing and celebrate, remembering that the good news of Jesus is that we are no longer at war with God. He does still fight for his people. And for that reason, we remember the body that was broken for us the blood that was spilled for us. And we wait for his kingdom and his coming. So come, take and remember. across the pages of time he who made every living thing behold him he who heard humanity's cry left his throne to wake as a child Son of 
calling us a friend.
Lord, it's an honor to know you and to be loved by you. And even as we leave this space, could we cling to the truth that we have both sung and received tonight? It's in your beautiful, precious name. Amen. Hey, if uh, you're in the room and you still need some time to behold him and you want a, a friend uh, to do that with, our prayer team will be available right over here on this side. Whether you have a, something to celebrate or you're walking through a hard time, they want to pray with you. But hey, Mosaic, may we go this week in peace to love and serve the Lord. And together we say...